This is Our American Stories, and we've got a treat for you this hour of this day in history that focuses on a name you all know. On this day in history, Henry Steinway died. I know a fine way to treat a Steinway, goes Irving Berlin's song, I Love a Piano. By 1915, Berlin didn't need to explain the word Steinway. It had been the preeminent American piano for more than 50 years. After 1860, most pianos were copies of Steinways. Chickering, Weber, Mason and Hamlin all came and went. Steinway stayed on top. In the end, the story we are about to bring you is a story about resiliency and the search for freedom. Let's take a listen to that story. As guests dine on succulent roasted fowl, and mouth-watering marinated oysters, washing their palates with ice-cold champagne. Piano music is in the air. The occasion is the opening of the new Steinway factory in New York on April 1st, 1860. A correspondent from a local newspaper declares, it is conceded that the Steinway piano, in make, tone, sweetness, precision, and durability, is the most perfect instrument of that class to be had anywhere in the world. The road to victory began 63 years earlier in Wolfshagen, a small forest hamlet nestled in the slopes of the Upper Hartz Mountains in northwest Germany, where Heinrich Steinweg, founder of Steinway & Sons, is born. Church records reveal that the Steinwegs were master charcoal burners, They lived in the woods and, like most charcoal burners, were regarded with deep suspicion by townspeople who rarely saw them. Steinweg's childhood is marked by many tragedies and twists of fate. At the age of eight, during a harsh winter, his mother and most of his siblings die from exposure. He is orphaned until his father and brothers, once thought to have been killed in action, return from the Napoleonic Wars and claim him. Then, at 15, he is orphaned once again, penniless and living on the streets. He seeks refuge in the German army. Two years later, he is fighting against Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo on June 18, 1815. Family legend has it that when an advance is made on Napoleon, the charge is signaled by a lone bugler, Heinrich Steinweg. According to this tale, he is awarded a bronze medal for bugling in the face of the enemy. When not heading off to battle, he is in the barracks, making mandolins and other instruments, and occasionally striking up a tune with the military band. After six years of military service, Steinweg begins an apprenticeship with the church organ builder. He is also introduced to the piano through his Jewish friend Karl Brand. Steinweg learns to build a piano by copying brands. As he changes the pipes of church organs, he becomes interested in notes, octaves, and chords. Thirsting for knowledge, he appears every Friday evening at his church to listen to the organist rehearse for Sunday services. Every German craftsman in 1835 has to belong to a guild. Since Heinrich Steinweg doesn't have a master craftsman diploma as an instrument maker, he's not allowed to build pianos officially. So he becomes a cabinet maker. But he's still very much interested in building instruments. 
he has restored, uh, I think, many instruments. He has seen them, he has compared them, and he has made his own uh, concept, his own piano, at that time for him, who was better than the instruments he has seen around him. Apart from being skilled in working with wood and special tools, building a keyboard instrument requires musicality and a complex knowledge of mathematics and physics. But Steinweg relies on intelligence and intuition. The cabinet maker decides to start building forte pianos and courts a woman he falls madly in love with, Juliana Tima, the daughter of a well-established glove maker. For the wedding, Steinweg wants to impress his sweetheart with a very unusual gift. Oh my goodness! Is that for me? Did you make this? Of course. Can I play it? In 1835, he gives his bride his first square piano that he designs himself. It sounds wonderful. Here's Heinrich Steinweg's descendant, Miles Chapin. That is consistent a little bit with this image of a businessman. I mean, if, if your first product is very complex and technically complicated, you don't want to sell it because it might break, in which case your reputation is ruined before it's even been made. So for him to take his first piano and give it to his wife... I think that's wonderful. Here, you you play this, honey, and tell me if it works, you know. Newly wed and raring to go, Heinrich Steinweg starts working and wants to build not only good pianos, but the best pianos in the world. With meticulousness and passion, he begins building his first grand piano in 1836, which he later sells to the Duke of Brunswick for 3,000 marks. This piano is later named the Kitchen Piano and is now on display at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, along with the square piano he gave to his wife. I believe he started out as a cabinet maker, but if you think about it from a businessman's point of view, with the amount of labor and the amount of time it takes to make one thing that's this big, okay, if this thing is a chest of drawers, you can sell it for X. But if this thing that you're making is a piano, and takes longer to make, you can sell it for five times X, six, ten times X, so that his product could be more valuable to him and his profit margins would be greater. I don't think he was driven musically at all. I don't think he was driven creatively at all. I think he was purely, my take is a purely a businessman, and he had a product that was a higher value product, and he would get a higher profit from it. Easier to transport, easier to build at home. He could have one at a time going. Uh, and that was why he went into it. And when we come back, more on the life of Henry Steinway. In 1871, Henry Steinway died. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and you're hearing a Steinway piano being played. That's Rachmaninoff. And on this day in history, Henry Steinway died. And by the way, so many of our This Day in History stories, when they're about business and they're back century and two centuries ago, are about immigrants. And by the way, even our Andy Grove story, which actually was just a less of This Day in History story than a celebration of his life, and he's one of the powerhouses behind Intel, Another amazing immigration story and an immigrant story. We pick up things where we left off. Steinweg's first grand piano is an enormous success. To meet the growing demand, Heinrich Steinweg decides to train his young boys. Even his five-year-old has to help out in the workshop. His musically talented daughter, Doretta, is only allowed to watch. The crafts are strictly for men. With the help of his sons, Steinweg can make 10 to 12 instruments a year. Then, in 1848, riots engulf most of Europe because of political instability and economic uncertainty, spawning movements towards socialism. Heinrich's second son, Charles, is on the front lines in the fight for the people's sovereignty against an absolutist prince and the civil liberties for the Christian middle class. The socialist revolution fails to produce a redistribution of wealth, land, or power. But it did paralyze businesses throughout Europe, thereby encouraging businessmen like Heinrich Steinweg to consider leaving. Fearing reprisals for their son, Charles leaves Germany and sails to New York City in 1849, where he is to find a safe haven both for himself and for the Steinweg piano business. In June 1849, Charles lands in New York, the heart of professional music making in America and of America's piano industry. The other major piano manufacturing cities are Boston, Baltimore, and Philadelphia, all centers for German immigrants. Pianos have only been in America since the Revolution, most of them brought in from shipwrecks by pirates as part of their booty. The rest were imported by John Jacob Astor, the German millionaire fur trader, who occasionally bartered furs for pianos. Beloved parents, brothers and sisters. Six weeks after his arrival, Charles writes to his family for the first time. New York seems to be an El Dorado for keyboard instruments. I soon found employment with a piano manufacturer. It's a pretty well-paying job. The growth of wealth in the United States promises great opportunities for piano manufacturers. You'll hardly believe it, but in nearly every household there's a piano. Family music is a part of daily life here. Be courageous and do not hesitate for too long. It was a time of great political upheaval in Germany, uh, in Europe, all through Europe. Um, it was not a climate conducive to business. And the Steinways, if anything, were businessmen. And Heinrich, if anything, was a businessman. And he lived in this small town in the Hartz Mountain region, Zazen. And he made his pianos one by one at home. But to sell them, he had to take them places. And to take them places, he had to cross borders. And when he crossed borders, there were tariffs, there were added costs that weren't going into his pocket. And he was ambitious. I think he just decided rationally to leave Germany to set up a shop in New York City. On May 28th, 
1850. The Steinbecks, along with their three daughters and three sons, board the first German ocean liner in Hamburg. On her maiden voyage, the Steinbecks reach New York City in just 30 days. Their eldest son, Theodor, stays in Germany to run the rest of the company. When the Steinbecks arrive, they face no restrictions, no questions, no Ellis Island, and no Statue of Liberty. They quickly move into a small rented apartment on Hester Street, in the middle of a quarter that's known as Little Germany. The Steinbecks' apartment is certainly very different from their spacious home back in Germany. With more than 600,000 German immigrants, New York is a German enclave. By 1860, one out of every four New Yorkers is German-born. Only Berlin and Vienna have more German citizens. These Germans brought with them a classical music culture which didn't exist in America. Here's Kathleen Hulser from the New York Historical Society, speaking to us on St. Mark's Place, just between 2nd and 3rd Avenues. On this street, you could see how busy and productive Germans were when they got to America. There would be pretzel sellers along this street, people selling cabbage, women selling clothes. And the Germans were really good at founding their own groups. They liked to get together and do things together. So they had Turnverein, a club for men. They had their beer gardens where the whole family would go. And they had things like a gun club, which you can see right on this street. It's still here. The gun club, the Schützengesellschaft, is something that was not just about shooting targets, it was also about men enjoying each other's company and drinking beer. The Steinwigs didn't go into business right away. Instead, they decided to work for others until they got their feet on the ground and learned some English and New York methods. Heinrich and his sons select the best New York piano makers to work for so that they can learn the latest and finest techniques. But three years after their arrival, an economic depression hits New York. Heinrich's sons are unemployed, and he's earning a very low day's pay as an employed piano maker. But giving up is out of the question. Don't worry, Juliana. I've got a plan. In these times of instability, the piano maker quits his job and opens his own workshop with his sons. They no longer have very much to lose, but with this move, they now have the potential to achieve a lot. To help with sales, business friends advise the Steinwigs to Americanize their name. And so Heinrich Steinwig becomes Henry Steinway. A humble attic on Varick Street, just below Canal Street on the west side of Manhattan, becomes their first company headquarters. On March 5, 1853, with only a verbal contract and a capital investment of just $6,000, the family-owned company called Steinway & Sons is founded. It was a good time to be in the piano business. Musical life in America was flourishing, and the piano was at the center of the increasing interest in music. Music in the home was seen as medicine for the soul and a stimulant for romance. Most piano pupils were women, other instruments being seen as detracting from feminine attractiveness. The cello demanded that a woman spread her legs, and the harp ruined her posture. But at the piano, she could sit demurely with her feet together. 
even courtship, increasingly took place at the keyboard. Now, my mother was the Steinway in the family, and she had four older brothers who she watched one by one go off and work at the family business. So naturally, when she came of age, she asked her father, when do I start in the family business? And the story goes that he brought her to the piano and said, come here, open the piano, read me what it says in the piano. Steinway and Sons, please, don't embarrass me. There's no women at Steinway and Sons. Even my secretary is a man. Close the lid of the piano, forget it. Here's Andy Horbachevsky, vice president of Steinway and Sons, New York. What was amazing to me is that in the 10 years from um, 1853 to 1860, when they started the factory, the very big factory um, on, on Park Avenue here, they went from scratch to building the most pian grand pianos of any other piano manufacturers. And I think that's a credit to not only the excellent design and craftsmanship, but they were tremendous, I think, businessmen and marketers and salesmen. And on this day in history, in 1871, Henry Steinway died. And as always, our This Days in History are always brought to us by the fine folks at Hillsdale College, where you study all the things that matter in life. If you're a student there, philosophy, art, education itself also consists of sports there. And, well, of course, the Constitution and our founders. This day in history, Henry Steinway, the story continues, and it just gets better after these messages. questions for another day I think I know what you've been asking me I think you know what I've been trying to say I promised I would never leave you and you should always know wherever you I never will be far away. This is Our American Stories, the life of Henry Steinway being celebrated for the hour. And on this day in history, Henry Steinway died. And we're playing Billy Joel for a reason. 
He said this about Steinway. I've long admired Steinway pianos for their quality of tone, clarity, pitch, consistency, touch, responsiveness, and superior craftsmanship. And thus, Steinway continues to live on with so many artists to perform. Diana Krall, Harry Connick Jr., Irving Berlin only played Steinways, George Gershwin, Vladimir Horowitz, Cole Porter, the list goes on and on. And with that, let's go back to the story of Henry Steinway. Each Steinway and Sons grand piano is handcrafted and comprises 12,000 individual parts assembled by as many as 450 people. The process takes over a year to complete. Although it's always the same construction plans and materials, no two pianos ever sound alike. Steinway Grand Pianos all have their own individual sound and personality. Here's Lang Lang, who is considered by many to be one of the finest concert pianists of all time. Lang compares the best pianos to great actors for their ability to convey extremes of emotion and attitude. It was the flamboyant pianism in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, he says, that originally drew him to the instrument. I had a great privilege to go to um, both uh, Steinway factories in New York uh, and in Hamburg. And uh, the people who work there, they, they, they are really work into the very detailed work. Um, it's a big monster, right? I mean, it's huge. But when they start working, almost like you found that they're, they're working on a Swiss watch. It's so detailed, everything's so precise, like they're making a violin or making some smaller item, you know. And, and that precise work really transferred uh, to, um, to the sound. There is a unique person in Steinway's factory, the one who makes the final tuning for all pianos before delivery. With an expert touch, he can quickly discern the questionable keys and makes chalk marks. Then he patiently adjusts the hammers to achieve the perfect string strokes. Because of his acute gift, he is known as Steinway's ear. Walter Boot is the heart and soul of Steinway and & Sons and has been working in the piano factory in New York for over 50 years. Not a single Steinway piano leaves the building until it satisfies his absolute hearing. My job is to even out the tone. I get the piano, the piano is all done, ready to go to somebody's house. And I like fine tune it. I listen to it, I play it, I make it all the sound even, so I'm happy with it. When I'm happy with it, I know you're gonna be happy with it. I love working with Chinway. Chinway did my whole life. They call me Uncle Wally because I worked here so long. When the piano come here, it looked like a piano. When it leaves, it sounds like a piano. So I put the, the love into the piano. Mozart, Rachmaninoff. So it is a, a really a circle of refinement. As the piano moves to the end of the line, we're constantly working on the pianos. We're constantly trying to get that last 
uh, that last ounce of, of tone out of it. We will baby that hammer. We will pull out as much as we can. If there was any single patent that made the most difference, it would be the overstrung one-piece cast iron frame. That's what differentiated the Steinway piano in its day. It was the first piano company to bring a grand piano with a one-piece cast iron frame to market successfully. They first showed it in 1867 in Paris, and pretty much you can measure the history of the piano from the time running up to that point and the time running away from that point. Because today you can't buy a piano that doesn't have a one-piece cast iron overstrung frame. But before that time, there were none. Together with his sons, Henry Steinway sees himself heading in the right direction. And his success proves him right. His credo is the same as ever, to build the best pianos in the world. You see pictures of him, and there's only a couple of them, and he was ramrod straight, and his fists jammed into his pocket, and his set of his jaw just like this. He was very determined, determined to make a successful company, to make a success of his life in the United States, to give his children a better life than he had. I think it's that classic American story. The Steinway's future depends first on skill, then on national recognition to boost sales. The company founder has an ingenious idea. He realizes that the renowned pianists and composers of the time are the ideal advertisers for Steinway & Sons. So he signs the acclaimed artists exclusively to Steinway. They are not bashful. They are not afraid to tell us if something is not 100% with the piano itself. So we are very lucky to have this very good feedback information coming back to us from this very valuable part of our customer base, the concert artists. They then built the Steinway Hall. Here in the Steinway Hall is where concerts took place. When you wanted to go to the concert hall, you had to walk through the exhibition rooms. And so, naturally, they did even more advertising for the pianos with that. The New York Times wrote at the time, the Steinways can be proud that they own the most magnificent piano business in the whole world. Today, over 95% of the world's finest pianists prefer Steinway pianos for their concerts. At 67, Henry Steinway has fulfilled all his dreams, reputation, wealth, and fame. But then, tragedy strikes. On March 11, 1865, Henry Jr. dies of consumption at the age of just 35. Then, just days later, Henry's other son Charles dies of typhoid fever while visiting his brother in Germany. Must have been devastating to Henry Steinway. I mean, to lose not only one son, but two sons. I mean, of course, that was an era where people died more easily. You didn't live as long and children died. But it was very, very difficult for him, especially you know, being an immigrant. I mean, his whole family, he brought with him. They were here. And when it's diminished by two, well, he did have the one son back in Germany, but when it's diminished the number that are in New York by two, that was when they wanted to bring C.F. Theodore over to you know, strengthen the family. It is William's job now to keep the family business running 
he writes to his brother Theodore in Germany that they desperately need him in New York. And three weeks later, brothers William and Theodore form the perfect company management. Theodore invents groundbreaking features for grand piano mechanisms, and William knows how to sell them. Their success starts spiraling. This is Our American Stories, the life of Henry Steinway. On this day in history, Henry Steinway died. The final segment after these messages. to hear somebody play upon a piano a grand piano it simply carries me away show them how to do it Ralph I love the fine way he plays a stine way I love to watch his fingers or the keys, the ivories, and with his pedal, he loves to meddle. Not only music from Broadway, he's so delighted when he's invited to hear some long-hat genius play. So you can keep your fiddle and your bow, give me a B-I-A-N-O-O-O, I'd like to stop right up to and up. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Tony Bennett and the great Ralph Sharon. And Bennett is one of those folks. His keyboard players always play a Steinway, too. And on this day in history, Henry Steinway died. The skill set, the way that the talents of the sons meshed, is really what made the difference. Because on the one hand, you had C.F. Theodore Steinway engineering the piano differently. But then on the other hand, you had his brother, William Steinway, who was changing the way you sold pianos, changing the marketing of pianos. And so when you had a company that had a demonstrably finer product coupled with uh, a CEO, a corporate officer, who knew how to sell that product and was innovative in the ways he was selling that product, boom, it came together and it just made a, a, a sum greater than the sum of the parts. Then in 1863, those parts were attacked by the Manhattan Workers' Union strikes. When the Furniture Makers Union decided to target the piano industry, Steinway was the biggest, the, had the most prominent name, and they decided to target Steinway and Sons. I think William Steinway was tremendously surprised by that. Surprised, insulted, nonplussed, and he was shocked. Uh, his workers, say he treated them as if they were his children. I mean, he had a very patronizing, in the best sense of the word, attitude towards his workers. He felt that he was their patron. He was their father figure. Um, at that time, he had a country house out here in Bowery Bay in Queens. And I think he had a revelation one day. He said, wait a minute. New York's over there. I have a house here. Here's all this land. The water, the ocean is right there. I can bring my warm materials in here. I can move my factory here. And I think he deliberately set about doing that, buying the acreage out here, um, moving the company out piece by piece, digging the tunnel underneath the East River. You know, the Steinway Tunnel was the first tunnel under the East River. I took it this morning when I took the subway into Manhattan. The number seven train goes through the William Steinway Tunnel. To get the workers out of the social unrest and union riots in Manhattan, Steinway has his Steinway Village 
built in Astoria, Queens. And he built gymnasiums, and libraries, churches, housing for his workers, and a lot of it is still there. Um, you can see on the streets, you know, the streets have been renamed, you know, 30th Avenue, 31st Street, but you can go to some of the housing that was the factory housing, and you can see chiseled on stone on the side of the building, Albertstrasse, Friedrichstrasse, and that was the names that William Steinway had for his original city. Then, in 1880, Theodor will return to Germany in order to open and operate a second factory in Hamburg, Germany. Since then, they have split the global market into two parts. New York supplies North and South America, and Hamburg the rest of the world. And there are subtle differences. Certainly a little in terms of just the, the finish and the high gloss versus the satin look. But there are also, also some uh, tonal differences in terms of how the tone is perceived. From our perspective as a global company, uh, we like the choice. There are artists that prefer the New York instrument in, in Europe and vice versa, that in, in, in North America here, some prefer the Hamburg. We think that offering a choice is good, and um, we will not change that in the future. The 150-year-old company produces about 2,000 handmade nine-foot concert grand pianos a year compared with the approximately 100 a day by other companies. These magnificent instruments do not come cheap. One is shown in the Steinway showroom here in New York on West 57th Street with a price tag of $103,000. No wonder a prospective buyer is very particular in choosing a specific piano. Each handmade instrument has its own personality. Some yield brighter sounds, while others have deeper, more muted timbers. The limited production hinges a lot on the brand's quite severe selection standards for timber. After all, 85% of the Steinway piano is made from wood. Precious timbers from all over the world are neatly stacked in Steinway's warehouses, and there they spend two years in their natural drying process before the next step. Space between them ensures good air circulation and the pliability of wood. After the drying process, only 50 to 60% pass the rigorous quality checks to become piano parts. As the soundboard is the central part of a piano, the design and selection of the materials for it must be meticulous. The artisans select the finest North American spruce. Spruce has the desired regular grain to ensure a smooth resonance. Only 5 to 10% of the timber from one tree can be used for the handmade soundboard by the experienced artisans. Australian concert pianist Piers Lane has specially flown to Hamburg to choose three concert grands for his hometown, Sydney. works as well. There's a, a singing sound with quality. Now it'd be interesting to compare that with the one down the end, say. So we start with the same thing now. Piers is attended to by a Steinway & Sons sales consultant, Garrett Glonner, who jots down notes while following Piers around a brightly lit showroom filled with Steinway grand pianos. I don't feel it's got the same fineness of quality as the other one in the tone, but let's try some Mozart. 
got the same depth of character as the other one. The other one's got more core to the sound. I want to compare that now with the first one. After a sound test marathon of six and a half hours, the pianist is just about to choose the three Steinway Grands that he finds worth considering among the huge selection. It's interesting because it makes me play it in a slightly different way, this piano. How do you feel, Garrett? The middle one is a kind of a mix of both. It's true. But yeah. uh, if I should use the term noblesse, yes. I would find it most in this Very one because there's yeah. some extra glints on, yeah. on each note. And I think yeah. it has a beautiful cantabile. I like the balance of the piano. Exactly. It feels you know, even across the whole range. But at the same time, it has the classical um, transparency as well in the texture. Periodically, there has been in the history of the piano, uh, the death bell has been summoned or been struck. You know what happened in the 1920s when player pianos started and when radio came on? People said, oh, well, nobody will listen to pianos anymore. After World War II, with hi-fi and television, people said, oh, people won't have pianos anymore. In the 50s, with electric pianos and Hammond organs, oh, no, people will never need pianos anymore. Didn't happen then. Hasn't happened now, you know? And still people are, are, are improving, tinkering, as you say, a little bit with the piano, just trying to find small improvements to it. But there's nothing that can replace it. Nothing can replace the sound of a grand piano. Well played. After 74 years, in 1871, an unusual life journey comes to an end. A journey that took the orphan from the Hartz Mountains in Germany to the highest highs of music. Courage, perseverance, and family were his strengths. After 150 plus years of turmoil, feuds, depression, wars, competition from the Far East, and people increasingly wanting their music from radios, records, cassettes, compact discs, and MP3 players, nothing has silenced the Steinway sound. Even if what Steinway is now selling is its past, rather than any technical innovations. A New York Times reporter referred to the Steinway factory as a resilient treasure in a city that wonders whether it has lost its soul. With his Steinway and Sons piano, Henry Steinway has made himself immortal. And great job on that as always, Greg. We love these hours. And by the way, only 50% of companies will survive the first five years of business. Only a third will survive 10. In family-owned businesses, 70% fail in the second generation, 88% dead on arrival by the third generation. And Steinway, my goodness, still thriving and on a fifth generation. This is Our American Stories, an immigrant story, an American enterprise story, an American exceptionalism story. It's all there, and it's tied to art and commerce, as it always is. This is Our American Stories, and as always, our This Day in History, brought to us by the great people and the great folks at Hillsdale College.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. There are some days we don't do any of these days in histories, and there are others we are compelled to do too. And today, well, that's one of those, this is one of those days. And in this hour, who is Pete Maravich, a.k.a. Pistol Pete? Well, some of you know, and I know then you can't wait to hear the rest of this. But for those of you who are basketball fans and don't know him, and those of you who don't like basketball at all and don't like sports, well, this is still a great story. And so let us begin with this simple question that I just asked. Who is Pistol Pete? Excitement, enthusiasm, greatness. That was Pete Maravich. He was unstoppable. It was as if you had melted down all 12 Harlem Globetrotters and then filled up this skinny 6'6 white frame with everything they had. Everything just stopped. It was like, wait a second. Did he just do what I think he did? You were never quite sure what he was going to do with the ball in the open court because he had a thousand moves to either shoot it or pass it. Give him that much room and he'll burn you. He faked with his right hand like he was going to the player on his left and he just whiffed it and then he hit it, tipped it with his left hand to the player on his right. He went in for a layup and the officials caught traveling. And Pete went crazy. He went to the official and said, you can't call that. You've never seen that move before. Nobody handled the ball better than Pistol. But he wasn't just satisfied with that. He had to put a little show on for the fans. I asked him once if he'd ever played a perfect game. He said, no, but I'm going to. So some night I'm going to take 40 shots and I'm going to make them all. He was an entertainer at heart. And his ability to pass the ball and dribble the ball and do outlandish things on the court, which sometimes even overruled the game, that was Pete Maravich. And Pete Maravich was born on June 22, 1947, in a small steel town in western Pennsylvania. His father, Press Maravich, was a local basketball hero himself who logged a short career as a pro. Press's skills became the foundation of his son's greatness. When I was seven years old, my dad sat me down and he said, Pete, if you'll listen to me, you might be able to get a scholarship in basketball because we can't pay your way. And maybe you not only get a scholarship, but maybe you'll go to the pro level and you'll play on a team that wins a world championship and you'll make a million dollars playing basketball and they'll give you a big diamond ring and they'll have your name on it and say world champions. And to a seven-year-old, my eyes lit up. And I said, Dad, that's what I want. He said, if you let me teach you, you just commit. You dedicate your life to basketball and that's all you have to do. And you'll live happily the rest of your life. And that's what I did. I became a human basketball. I was a basketball android. And that he was. There's always those great clips of seeing Pistol Pete walking down the street, twicking that basketball on his finger. And you knew he slept with the ball. He was the ball. Pete's father knew exactly how to pull his son's heartstrings. Let's take a listen. Pete would come on the court in the backyard and say, let me shoot, give me the ball. And Press would say, no, go back in the house, you're too small. And Press said on one occasion he would left the ball on the court and went back in the house and looked back through the kitchen window and he saw that Pete had slipped onto the court, picked up the ball and started shooting. And Press said, I knew at that moment I had him. 
It was like his dad was dangling something out in front of him and would intrigue him and Pete would get interested in it and then his dad would take another step and then another step until he was hooked and he was obsessed by the game of basketball. When he was 12 years old, he opened the window to his room, jumped out of the window and spent the night in the woods cuddling a basketball. When Press was at the wheel of the car, Pete would sit in the back seat by the window, put the window down, and as Press drove slowly, Pete would dribble the ball. Now, I mean, that's an eerie connection with basketball. You bet. And according to NBA.com, when Pete was only 11, get this, he made 500 consecutive free throws one evening after school. Try that. Just give it a shot. See how long it takes you to make 500 straight. Like, mm, forever. And he stopped only when it became too dark to see the rim that was illuminated only by his father's flashlight. In 1956, the Maravich family moved to South Carolina, where Press would coach Clemson's basketball team. While Press built a reputation in the ACC, Pete was building one of his own, playing on the high school varsity team as a 12-year-old. In 1959, he threw a pass between his legs, and the crowd went berserk. It was a small crowd, but they went nuts. And at that time, something clicked in him, very much like any entertainer. When practice was over at high school, he would stay another hour or two, just ball handling and shooting hook shots from half court, stuff like that. He was about five foot, weighed about 80 pounds when he was in the eighth grade. He used to sit out there from 20, 25 feet, shoot from the hip. That's when he got that pistol name. Pete was always the last one to leave the court. And when Press would be there to pick him up, he would say, well, come on, Pete. And Pete would always put him off. Uh, Dad, I've got a little bit more to work on. You know, I've got something else I need to do. And Press would look at me and he'd say, how about that kid? When I knew him in high school, he was this jittery, jerky kind of a guy, the kind of guy that, a, you know, probably some psychologist today would have him on Ritalin. You know, he, he was probably just too jerky. He couldn't concentrate. He couldn't sit still. Trying to be friendly to Pete was kind of hard because he would, he would start looking down and moping around. He wouldn't really care, in particular, if there were girls involved. <laughs> and after high school, Press Maravich presented he and his son as a package deal to the college would put, that would put forth the best officer, offer. Press chose LSU, fulfilling his dream of coaching his son. I can remember the first day I saw Press Maravich at a press conference at LSU, the first one he had as a coach. And before he got halfway through, he said, boy, there's going to be a guy next year at LSU is going to be the greatest basketball player in the world, my son Pete. Now, as you can imagine, if you know anything about the SEC, Selling basketball in a place like LSU, well, that's just funny. I mean, football in Death Valley in that stadium, that's religion itself, practically, as close as one can get. When we come back, how Press and Pete turn LSU into a basketball powerhouse and put LSU on the map for hoops, not football. More on this day in history, celebrating the life of Pistol Pete Maravich. You won't believe the rest of this story. Yeah.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this day in history, Pistol Pete Maravich was born in 1947. And as one of the commentators had said early on in last segment, Pistol Pete Maravich was all of the Harlem Globetrotters wrapped into one human being. And it's true. Well, back to the story. It was an almost impossible feat back then, as I had indicated, to sell basketball in a place like Louisiana and LSU. But with Pete, anything was possible. It wasn't until Pete showed up on campus and started playing that, I mean, it was like the word spread like wildfire, that here was a bona fide superstar. And it'd be five, 6,000 people would show up for the freshman game just to see him. And then they'd have the varsity game, and it would be like six, 700. <laughs> and that was Jim Carville, by the way. You know him from his political commentary. He was also an LSU alum. After averaging 44 points on a freshman team that lost just once, and again, I said 44 points, that was his average day, Pete joined his father on the varsity team in 1967, where he dominated the league and filled stadiums with enamored fans. But receiving his father's approval was what Pistol Pete craved most of all. Those of us that were close to press could tell how proud he was of Pete. And behind Pete's back, he would just say glorious things about Pete. He would never tell Pete that he was that great. Part of what Pete was searching for was his father's approval, and I don't think he got it very often. And it's interesting, withholding some of that approval and love made him strive more. And I'm not saying that's what we should do as parents all the time, but sometimes perhaps we shower our kids with a little too much praise. And finding that right balance, I think that's what we all struggle with. While Pete and his father interacted on the basketball court, his mother, Helen, well, she struggled with the crowds and rarely went out in public. The sad thing about that was when she was in public, she was just absolutely marvelous. A wonderful lady, but she just, I think, crawled within herself. His uh, mother was an alcoholic. I don't think uh, anybody identified that problem at the time. Nobody talked about that problem at the time. But uh, you could put things together. You could. And Pete himself, well, he struggled with alcohol as well. You would wake up in the morning to go to class and go out there and see how did he get his car in this spot. You could almost sense and feel him hitting the front bumper and then backing up to the back bumper and front bumper and back bumper until he gets in. He drank a lot when he was in college was the reports we were getting, a couple of wrecks. And, of course, you know, his daddy wasn't going to kick him off the team, but he might bat him around a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I don't think people laugh about that quite as much, but that was, those were the days. That's what happened, and that was pretty routine. However hard Pistol Pete played off the court, he never let up once the whistle blew, averaging 44 points in his sophomore and junior years. But scoring was only part of Pistol Pete's arsenal. We felt like his ball handling and his assist abilities overshadowed his scoring abilities. And that sounds crazy when a guy averages 40-some points a game. So we made the decision that we were going to play him straight up and guard the heck out of the rest of the people. Coach Rupp didn't think that Pete could beat us all by himself, and so we would play him one-on-one. The six games that we played against each other uh, in college, I think Pete averaged over 50 points a game. But we won all six games, so Coach Rupp was right. Coach Rupp, by the way, of the powerhouse Kentucky squads. And imagine that, 50 points a game against one of the great college basketball teams of all time. In late January of 1970 against Ole Miss, and we broadcast 
from Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss. It's just about an hour south of Memphis. The pistol passed Oscar Robertson's NCAA scoring record. That senior year, he also broke his own season record by averaging 44.5 points a game. He finished his college career with an NCAA record 3,667 points in only three seasons. Because again, back then, NCAA rules at the time prohibited first-year students from playing at the varsity level. To this day, he still holds 11 NCAA records, including the all-time leading NCAA scorer with career averages of 44.2 points per game over a three-year career. That's just crazy. All of his accomplishments were achieved before the three-point line shot and the shot clock were introduced to the NCAA basketball system. And despite being unable to play varsity again as a freshman under NCAA rules. So just imagine what he could have accomplished. Let's take a listen. Well, what I do every year in my first notes column of the year is, is I just remind people of what Pete Maravich did, that he averaged 44 points a game for three seasons. And I don't think people understand what that number is, and, and that's a number that will never be approached ever again in college basketball. I think without a doubt he was the greatest offensive player ever to play the game. If you want to break his record, that was with no three-point shot. All you have to do is score 15 three-pointers every game you play your entire college career, and you'll break Pistol's record. No one's ever going to do it. As college's all-time scoring champion, though, Marriage would face Maravich would face a new challenge, and a new challenge in the National Basketball Association. We are most happy to announce that Pete Maravich will play professional basketball for the Atlanta Hawks. As the third pick in the 1970 NBA draft, the Atlanta Hawks made NBA history by presenting the richest contract ever offered to a college player at five years for $1.9 million. But not everyone was happy with that deal. Here's a white kid who hasn't played a day as a pro, making more than triple the salary of anyone else on that team. And it caused some dissent. You think? Yeah, the vets probably weren't too happy. Despite his national following at a 24-point average, Maravich wasn't adding wins. The Hawks never won a playoff round in his four seasons there. The Hawks' GM at the time was Pat Williams, and he was approached by head coach Cotton Fitzsimmons about Maravich's game, his drinking, and his temperament. Here's Pat. Cotton came to me at that point and said, you know, we got to start thinking about making a a move here. Well, I started doing that very quietly, and, uh, you know, it was very, very interesting. There was no interest. There was no interest. Maravich was eventually picked up by the expansion team, the New Orleans Jazz. Pete was finally going home. Here again is Pat Williams. Pete then says, um, what did you get for me? And I told him, trying not to be too elated, but I reeled off the picks we were going to get, laid the whole package, and there was a little pause, and Pete said, is that all? Is that all? And then in 1974, Helen Maravich was pronounced dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. She was 49. Here's Pete's friend, Calvin Murphy. I saw a difference after his mother passed away. I saw a difference in Pistol. I saw a, a serene, almost kind of a lost individual. It was all the pressure that was placed upon him that wanted to chase him away from the game. He didn't know if it was worth it anymore. 
And Calvin Murphy himself was a heck of a ball player for the Houston Rockets. Maravich averaged 21 points and 16 assists in his first season with the Jazz. It was the first season he made All-Pro. He averaged 33 points in 1977, and the pistol could still deliver showtime performances. Both guns were blazing on February 25th, 1977, against the New York Knicks. He just went off that night. It was the most amazing thing I'll ever remember seeing as a player. Pistol fire! Sixty-eight from Arovich. That game is bettered by six other players only in NBA history. Battling a bad knee, Arovich was waived and picked up by the Boston Celtics, where he finished his career in 1980. That final year would be the rookie season for his fellow Celtic teammate, Larry Bird. Unfortunately for Arovich, his last year would be the first year the three-point line was instituted, a line from which he shot 66 0.7%. Maravich was 33, and the next couple of years without his passion, the fame, and his identity, it would be sheer torture. According to Pete, these were the darkest two years of his life. He basically holed up in the house. He was incredibly depressed, and he spoke about it as if he was a drug addict going through withdrawals. And the withdrawal was the attention and the love that he had for basketball. But Pete Maravich was about to be released from his demons. How he gained his freedom surprised all who knew him. In 1982, the depressed and lost son of a basketball father found someone else to believe in. Pete Maravich believes that God spoke to him audibly. And he said that from that day on for the rest of his life. And I was getting ready to go off my bed, and God spoke to me. He spoke to me audibly. He said, be strong and lift thine own heart. It reverberated through my room. I'll never forget it as long as I live, just like I'm speaking in this microphone. He was not in my sphere. He was outside. He had not come in yet. And that's the voice of Pistol Pete Maravich, and he had found Christ. And when we come back, the rest of this remarkable story, Pistol Pete, born this day in history. And if you ever catch the 30-30 that ESPN did on him, just the video alone will just make you laugh. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, the life of Pistol Pete Maravich, celebrated here on Our American Stories. I wanted to go back to that last clip. There was more to it we had to cut out because we were heading towards a break. But, you know, as we had said, Maravich was about to be released from his demons, and he gained his freedom, well, from a surprise place. No one expected it. Let's return to that clip and take a listen. Pete Maravich believes that God spoke to him audibly. And he said that from that day on for the rest of his life. And I was getting ready to go off my bed, and God spoke to me. He spoke to me audibly. He said, be strong and lift thine own heart. It reverberated through my room. I'll never forget it as long as I live, just like I'm speaking in this microphone. He was not in my spirit. He was outside. He had not come in yet. 
God spoke to us personally. And a lot of people can't understand that. I don't understand it. But he spoke to us audibly. I'm saying, now, come on, Pete. He says, oh, I promise you, Bob. I was woken by a sound. It was the Lord speaking to me. And at that time, he dedicated his life to the Lord. He found that, and he was more devoted to that than anything I've ever seen, basketball included. Once he became a Christian, he would read his Bible hours at a time, every day. He would go up and talk with anybody then, where before he thought everybody was coming to talk to him all the time. And he was always trying to convert somebody to Christianity. Pete helped guide his own father to Jesus, who died of cancer in 1987. Here is Pete reflecting on his father just after he died. My dad was really my hero. I mean, he influenced me so greatly in my life, and uh, he influenced me until the day he died. Uh, We were very, very, very close, and uh, I think that's good. I think a father and son should be that close. I think uh, the heroes today should be the fathers. They should not be some uh, athlete. You can admire athletes. You can admire rock stars. You can admire people. But it should be the fathers Mm. that are the heroes of kids today. I think most kids, most kids like to be like their fathers. And then nine nine months later, Pete himself would follow his father. On January 5th, 1988, Pete was scheduled to be interviewed with Dr. James Dobson on his Christian radio program, Focus on the Family. While playing pickup basketball at the church's gym in Pasadena, California, something terrible happened. Here's Dr. Dobson and his colleagues who were witnesses that day. I knew that he had really come through a difficult time in his life and uh, there'd been a dramatic change in his life when he met Jesus Christ and uh, I really wanted to hear him tell that story but I had not met him until that uh, morning at 7 o'clock when we uh, met at the gym to play basketball. I think he was going about half speed but there was a move or two that he made that took our breath away. We played uh, about three games, and, uh, and at that time, uh, some of the guys went to get a drink of water, some went outside to get some fresh air, and before I knew it, it was just Dr. Dobson and Pete on the court, and I was underneath the basket rebounding for Pete as the two of them talked. He said, you know, I've loved being here today. He said, I, I've really got to get back into basketball, even if it's pickup stuff like this. And I said, uh, how do you feel today? And I promise you his last words to me were, I feel great. I just feel great. And I turned to walk away, and I don't know why, but I looked back at him for some reason, just in time to see him fall. And he fell hard. He didn't break his fall. I mean, his face hit the boards. I walked over very carefully along with Dr. Dobson, thinking that Pete was going to jump in our faces. But as soon as we got close, we could see his eyes rolling back and the color in his face starting to change. And then I saw that he was in a seizure, and I got down over him, and uh, I held his tongue and kept his air passage open for about 20 seconds. And then he just just writhed once like that. His body moved once, and it was gone. The man died in my arms. Maravich was 40. He left behind his wife, Jackie, and their two sons, Joshua and Jason. In 1996, Maravich was named one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history. While Joshua and and Jason were there representing their father, Magic Johnson approached Maravich's two sons and confessed that he borrowed the term Showtime from Maravich and said that, quote, he was the real Showtime. 
Here's NBA Hall of Famer Elvin Hayes, followed by Pistol's brother, Ronnie. Most artists, when they are living, people don't recognize them and recognize their great talent until after they're gone. And I think this is what really happened to be Maravich. It seems like to me everybody wants to dwell on the sad times or depressed times. He had a good life. He had a great life. He did what he wanted. He played basketball. That was his love. And he ended up with his second love, his wife. And then he had his kids. And then he found Jesus. I think he died a happy person. If he was alive today, he would probably be walking down Bourbon Street handing out leaflets for Jesus. He got one person out of a thousand. He'd be happy. Yep, that sounds like Pistol. He was a great, he was like a great singer with a style all his own, a pacing that was different, a flair for the unusual, said Los Angeles Lakers legendary announcer Chick Hearn. NBA great Paul Westfall said this. He was an artist. His canvas was the court, and his brush was the basketball. And NBA legend Elgin Baylor declared, quote, Jerry West was the best I ever played with, and Pete is the best I've ever seen. Here's another NBA legend, Bill Walton, reflecting on the pistol and the no three-point line while he was in college. Amazing about Pete, 44 points per game, career, for three straight years in an era with no three-point line. Dale Brown, who coached at LSU after Press and Pete were there, Dale Brown went back and charted all the games with the with the running score, you know, Maravich free throw, Maravich 22-foot jumper, Maravich layup. And he calculated that with the current college three-point rule at 19-9, Pete Maravich would have averaged 13 three-point makes per game, which would have given him a career average of 57 points per game under today's rules. That guy is unbelievable. We love him. We miss him terribly. What a great friend. What a great human being. The late Pete Maravich. In his 2005 memoir, Chronicles, Volume 1, Bob Dylan wrote this about Pete Maravich. Quote, and imagine this, Bob Dylan writing about Pistol Pete. I started and completed the song Dignity the same day I'd heard sad news about Pistol Pete. I'd seen him play in New Orleans once. He was something to see. Mop of brown hair, floppy socks, the holy terror of the basketball world. High-flying, magician of the court. The night I saw him, he dribbled the ball with his head, scored a behind-the-back no-look basket, dribbled the length of the court, threw the ball up off the glass, and caught his own pass. He was fantastic. Scored something like 38 points. He could have played blind. Pistol Pete hadn't played professionally for a while, and he was thought of as forgotten. I hadn't forgotten about him, though. Some people seem to fade away, but then when they are truly gone, it's like they didn't fade away at all. And we're going to leave you with that song from Bob Dylan. Fat man looking in blade of steel. Thin man looking at his last meal. Hollow man looking in a cotton field. For dignity. Wise man looking in a blade of grass Young man looking in a shadows that pass Poor man looking through painted glass For dignity Somebody got murdered on New Year's Eve 
Somebody said dignity was the first to leave. I went into the city, went into the town, went to the land of the midnight sun. Searching high, searching low, searching everywhere I know. Asking the cops wherever I go, have you seen dignity? Blind man breaking out of a trance, puts his both hands in the pockets of chance. Hoping to find one circumstance of dignity. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now and then, we love to throw to Jesse's favorite segment, and he brings us, well, he brings this to us when he feels like it. Let's take a listen. (laughs) Shower thoughts. People shouldn't be allowed to use the bathroom on an airplane for flights lasting under two hours. If you can't hold it for that long, too bad. I'm sorry your mommy didn't teach you any self-control. I'd like to think that money wouldn't change who I am, but when I'm winning Monopoly, I become a terrible person. If organized crime started printing high-quality counterfeit college textbooks and then sold them at cut-rate prices, it'd be a really good public relations move. If pigs could fly, I bet their wings would taste delicious. When boarding an airplane, first-class passengers are forced to sit at eye level with the coach passengers' crotches as they board. Airlines could solve this problem by letting first-class board last. Sometimes pets are better than children. They eat less, they don't ask for money, and if they get pregnant, you can just sell their babies. Dog food could say it's any flavor it wants to. You're not going to test it. When I was a small kid, my grandma used to show me love by playing along with my make-believe games. Now that she's older and has dementia, it's my turn to show love by playing along with hers. If you accuse someone of being argumentative, they can't disagree with you without proving your point. Why would anybody buy a bookmark for a dollar when they could use a dollar for a bookmark? According to most ghost photos, our clothes must have a soul too, otherwise all ghosts would be photographed naked. The kind of people who close the shade on an airplane window should be placed on the terrorist watch list and not be allowed to fly. These people are the last kind of soul-sucking vampires I would want to die with if, God forbid, the plane went down in flames over the sun-scorched desert. Shouldn't billboards be illegal since they distract you from the road? If you wash the dirt from a fallen ice cube, you're washing your water with water and hope that there's only water on the water that you will add to your water. Shower thoughts. (laughs) Well, thanks for that, Jesse, as always. And next, we're bringing you Melissa Fenton, who runs the website www.fourboysmother.com. As you might guess, Melissa is a wife and a mother of four boys and writes humorous and heartfelt essays about modern parenting and nostalgia. We've all heard about that tragic accident at Disney World 
where two parents enjoying a vacation with their kids suddenly and violently had their world torn upside down when an alligator took their two-year-old boy in front of their very eyes. The father suffered numerous wounds as he fought a losing battle for his young, helpless son in the alligator's clutches. The mother even ran to help and also suffered wounds. Tragically, in the end, the young boy was not saved. And the day after the accident, Melissa Fenton penned a fantastic essay, Open Letter to Perfect Parents, Put Down Your Pitchforks, that went absolutely viral. And, well, she recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Melissa's poignant rant that rivals some of Hengler's very best rants. Parents, I beg of you, stop blaming and shaming other parents. 35 years ago, a mom shopping in a Sears department store went to go look at lamps and left her six-year-old with another group of boys who were all trying out the new Atari game at a kiosk. That boy's name was Adam Walsh. 30 years ago, an 18-month-old toddler playing in her aunt's backyard fell into a well. Rescuers worked nonstop for 58 hours, finally freeing baby Jessica from the well. In both cases, a tragedy happened. An unforeseen tragic accident took place which left Adam dead and a toddler fighting for her life deep underground. But they also had something else in common. They had an entire country of moms and dads supporting the grieving parents. Let me repeat that. Everyone supported the rescue efforts without blame. No blame. None. Zero. No questions asked. Not one single, where were their parents, comment. Just a country of other moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, watching in horror as a set of parents, one of their own, went through the unthinkable. Adam was everybody's son, and Jessica was everybody's daughter. Those parents were us. Flash forward to 2016, the year of the perfect parent. Yesterday, a two-year-old boy splashing in the magical lakefront waters of a Disney resort succumbed to the wilds of Mother Nature. An aggressive alligator scooped him out of the water right under the watch of his father, who attempted to fight with the alligator to free his baby son. Pure horror. Sheer terror. Parents who actually had to watch their baby be taken from them as if they were in some African nature documentary. A tragic and unforeseeable accident. An accident. I weep for this mother and father. I am sick with anguish for the pain, agony, misery, and regret, regret pulsing through their veins this very second. And I bet you are too. But not everyone is. You see, we now live in a time where accidents are not allowed to happen. You heard me. Accidents, of any form, in any way, and at any time, well, they just don't happen anymore. Why? Because blame and shame. Because we have become a nation of blamers and shamers. And how are accidents allowed to happen if we can't blame someone? Surely they can't, right? I mean, random acts of nature, unpreventable tragedies, and fateful life-changing events that take place in a matter of nanoseconds cannot possibly take place if everyone is being a responsible parent, right? Nope. They can't, because this country and its population of perfect pitchfork-carrying mothers and fathers sitting behind keyboards needs to accuse. They need to blame. 
to disparage, to criticize in every damn way and at every damn corner the parenting of another. And when do they really get to lick their blaming chops? When a tragic accident happens. That's when the pouncing is at its freshest. When raw emotion and ignorance collide and they dig their word claws in and take hold of whatever grace these grieving mothers and fathers have left in their souls. And they tear it out. Listen to me very carefully, perfect parents. Very carefully. I've had enough. I've had enough of scrolling through comment threads and seeing over and over again questions like, Where were the parents? And thoughts like, This is what happens when you don't watch your kids. I've simply had enough. I have one question for the blaming and shaming moms and dads. You know the ones who immediately blame the parents. The ones who go on the internet and type comments like, This is nothing but neglect by the parents. And, They should have known better. Who was watching that little boy? And my personal favorite, I would never let that happen to my kid. Here's my question. Have you ever been to a child's funeral before? Because I have. The funeral of a child is an event in life that you never, ever want to experience. Now let me ask you another question. In the coming week, these parents will fly back to their home in Nebraska without one of their children. They will leave a vacation resort, packing up his Buzz Lightyear pajamas and his favorite blanket, and they will make an excruciatingly difficult journey home. A journey that they never in a million years thought they would be making. They will meet with the funeral director, pick out a tiny casket, a tiny burial suit, and surrounded by family, they will bury their baby boy, and they will suffer every single day for the rest of their life. At the funeral for this two-year-old boy who died in front of his parents, can you do me a favor? Can you walk up to that mother and say the words that you just typed out last week? Can you? Can you greet her, hug her, shake the father's hand, and then say, Who was watching that little boy? You should have known better. I would never let that happen to my child. Can you do that for me? I mean, you felt those words so deeply in your heart and soul that you typed them for a million people to read. Certainly, you can say it straight to the faces of the people you meant it for, right? Here, let me help you. Put away your pitchfork for a moment and try this. To the mother and father who went for a walk and vacation for the last time with their little boy yesterday, I am deeply sorry that you had to experience the worst kind of tragedy possible, an accident. I grieve with you. Your baby was my baby. Your son was my son. I have nothing but love for you, love to help you get through the pain yesterday, today, and for what is going to seem like a thousand tomorrows. I wrap my thoughts and prayers around your aching heart and soul. May the God of this universe, in some miraculous way, bring peace to you and your family. That is what you say. That. And just that. Stop blaming. Stop shaming. In their darkest hours, can we please just love other parents? Please? And that was Melissa Fenton, author of An Open Letter to Perfect Parents. Put down your pitchforks. Couldn't agree more. That's why we ran it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to hear more of our content, 
more of our storytelling, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.